Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Boris Johnson calls for politicians to be civil and kind to each other as the rows continue over vaccines and universal credit. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Quite a lot of Tory MPs know that cutting this money to people who desperately need it in the middle of a pandemic is the wrong thing to do. They know that. On Monday night, six Tory MPs defied calls from the Prime Minister to abstain and voted with Labour in an opposition day debate on the planned removal of a £20 a week uplift in universal credit for six million people. Boris Johnson called the vote a stunt and then, through his new press secretary, asked for people in political debate to be nicer to each other. With knotty political decisions still to come on who will get the vaccines when and when and how to repair the public finances, are we leaving the pandemic politics of constructive criticism and heading for nastier waters? In Scotland, the surprise resignation of the Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard has injected some energy into a party struggling to restore its fortunes among the electorate. Plus, looking ahead to Rishi Sunak's budget at the start of March, I speak to experts about how he can help Boris Johnson with his plan to level up the UK. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as vaccine rollout plans take shape and universal credit becomes a fraught topic, I'm joined by my colleague Peter Walker to discuss the action this week. Uh, Peter, it's lovely to have you on. Let's maybe start with vaccination, shall we, which is one of the big challenges the government has at the moment, that they're getting through those first groups, the over 80s and so on. But um, I noticed this week, poor old Matt Hancock's self-isolating, isn't he, again? George Osborne suggested some ministers could get the vaccine first as a matter of priority or next, rather. Do we know if that's being considered and how are these kinds of decisions being made? Every time Number 10 gets asked about this, they go very slightly frightened and kind of refer it all to this organisation called the uh, Joint Committee on Vaccination and uh, Immunisation, which is the JCVI, which is the one that came up with this kind of list of, you know, the first people should be care home residents, uh, over 80s and things like that. And they're basically desperate to make sure that there's not any kind of like idea that they're kind of spinning it for their mates. And there is an argument, you know, there's a perfectly good kind of utilitarian argument that vaccinating, you know, about 20 or 30 top government ministers meaning they don't have to self-isolate, uh, would probably make sense in the national scheme of things, but they're never, ever going to do it because then you'd have newspaper headlines of, you know, healthy cabinet ministers getting it before frail 95-year-olds. They're not so much in a kind of bind, but they are very, very keen, you know, as with a lot of kind of COVID-related things to say, oh, it's all about the science. We're not actually going to make the choice, you know, because the decisions over who gets vaccinated first is an incredibly sensitive one. And I think they're trying to 
distance themselves from that as much as they can. And the politics of that's going to be quite difficult, isn't it? Because you have lots of lobbying for various different groups. You have the teachers unions saying, you know, our, our staff are very vulnerable. They're in the classes full of kids all the time passing it on. And you've, of course, got police saying, you know, what about us? And then you've got to think about, for example, supermarket workers who are still out there every day, aren't they? You know, keeping us all going. Yeah, it's, it's this incredibly difficult thing. And it's, you know, the way that kind of medical regulators have to almost like balance up the cost of a, of a medicine over how many you know life years it'll uh, save. It's this thing that, on average, teachers and police officers are going to be healthier and younger than maybe someone over 60. But at the same time, their exposure to the virus is very, very great. And Cresta Dick, the head of the Metropolitan Police, is saying you know, that she very much believes that police officers should be somewhere near the front of the queue for the next lot of people. Teaching unions, as you say, are saying that. I mean, I genuinely don't know which way the government's going to go. Whenever Number 10 asks about this, they basically hide behind this thing saying, oh, it's just the JCVI. And they also point out that ultimately ministers decide whether or not to follow the recommendations of the JCVI. But I think what they'd really like would be for this committee to, I don't know, come up with an order that everyone could more or less agree on. And then the ministers say, well, we know we just do what they say. And we should acknowledge, Peter, that so far this vaccine rollout, as we have to call it, seems to be going pretty well, doesn't it? It's 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 pretty fast, isn't it? You know, compared to some of the other operations we've seen, test and trace and so on, it's it's so far it's looking good, isn't it? It's almost become a kind of cliche of talking about the vaccinations, that it's the one time in the um, COVID era when this government has kind of under-promised but actually done more than it said it would. And it was notable that when the first number 10 press conferences, you know, when the vaccines were about to be done, Boris Johnson is normally very, very bullish, you know, who's famously saying things will be normal by Christmas, things will be normal in 12 weeks, all these kind of deadlines he's had to go back from. He was quite careful and he was saying, look, we aim to get these top groups done by, you know, February, middle of. But, you know, he was being very, very kind of cautious, saying there's a lot of caveats, it depends on this, depends on that. The vaccination numbers day by day have varied a little bit and it's been incredibly difficult to work out why and also to work out why some areas are vaccinating more quickly than others. Uh, supply seems to be one issue. But overall, you know, even Labour is saying this is, you know, the area of the pandemic where they think the government has actually done pretty well. And the Welsh government have come in for a bit of criticism, haven't they? Mark, Mark Drakeford has over the way that they're sort of trying to distribute the vaccines over days rather than using every single vial as soon as it gets to them. Is that is that is there any fairness in that? Again, it's kind of tricky because the uh, number 10 insistence is that every region and every area has been given a kind of proportionate number of vaccines that they need. But by the same token, some areas, not just Wales, are managing to vaccinate people at a slower rate. Like the rate in London is notably slower than some other, some areas, for example, in the north. And it's not quite clear why. I mean, you know, at the regular daily lobby briefing yesterday, there's a lot of questions to Boris Johnson's people as to why there was this kind of big regional difference. And we didn't really get any answers. So, you know, Mark Drakeford is getting a bit of stick for it. And there might be some political errors that have been made. But Wales is by no means the only area which is lacking. And it's still not quite clear why. We had a, a bit of a return to, to oppositional politics as usual this week, didn't we? With Very much so. With Labour's bid to persuade the government to, to maintain the £20 a week uplift in universal credit that Rishi Sunak introduced as an emergency measure at the sort of height of the pandemic last spring. Um, it, it got a bit nasty, didn't it? It got really, really nasty because this is almost, I mean, part of it comes from when Labour lasted an opposi- opposition day motion about extending free school meals. And... 
it became seen as this kind of quite clear-cut moral issue. And when Conservative MPs voted against it, there was a lot of online criticism, some of it really nasty against Conservative uh, MPs. But, you know, to be fair, that is what an opposition's job partly is, is to point out issues which they say is very, very clear-cut and where they see the government's going wrong. You know, a lot of charities have pointed out that this £20 a week is incredibly vital and it's currently due to disappear in uh, April. And no one really believes the pandemic is going to be, you know, normalised by then. Um, so there's a very, very clear case to carry it on. And the government's in a bit of a bind because they've, you know, mooted the idea of giving everyone on universal credit a one-off payment or extending it for six months or extending it for a year. And again, they seem to be kind of caught up in this kind of current rather than kind of taking control. But this opposition day motion, which is just a kind of symbolic vote, um, the debate on it was really kind of quite odd because Labour were being reasonably measured. They were saying, look, we realise abuse is obviously wrong, but we think this is something the government should do. But the number 10 line, which was repeated by a lot of the Conservative MPs who got up and spoke, was this is opportunism. This is kind of an incredibly opportunistic thing to do. And Labour trying to get the public to, you know, abuse Tory MPs. And the whole thing just felt quite artificial and slightly strange. And in the end, the debate was a bit of a damp squib, really. But there's a risk, isn't there, that... that you know the the way the public see this is is you know rather how labor see it which is you know it's rather cruel really not not to extend this payment at a time when the pandemic's clearly you know in in full flow still and it, louise casey who's reviewed a series of issues for the government she she talked today didn't she about the conservatives returning to the label the nasty party that's a risk for them here isn't it it's a real risk and free school meals and universal credit are the two areas where they've basically been on the back foot with free school meals, they've you know been for months saying, no, we're not going to change. Then Marcus Rashford sends a few tweets and they suddenly do change. And universal credit has this feel of this kind of thing. And some of the newer Northern Conservative MPs are not very pleased because these are the kind of issues which, you know, I think a lot of the people who switched from Labour to the Conservatives in 2019, a lot of those voters would feel it's quite a kind of important issue, you know, it's quite a kind of pivotal one. And, and there is this real danger that, you know, as the pandemic goes on, they'll be seen as, you know, kind of mean spirited. Mm, and, and yet, uh, as you say, that the claim from Boris Johnson's end was that it was Labour who were the bullies, wasn't, wasn't it? That that was he sent his MPs this extraordinary message and, you know, said we're not going to take part because, you know, our MPs have been subject to terrible sort of bullying and, and intimidation. And, you know, it is very, very true that the kind of social media world for politicians and MPs is not particularly nice. But I don't think you can necessarily blame Labour for this when they're, you know, doing an opposition day motion, which is a very long established parliamentary thing, which is when the opposition party gets to raise what they see as an important issue. And no one pretend that, you know, this issue is a kind of artificial one. You know, a thousand pounds a year, as Labour pointed out, is for many people the difference between being able to like pay your gas and electricity bills over the course of a year and not being able to. It didn't get any better for the Tories, did it, Peter, when Boris Johnson's new press secretary, Allegra Stratton, tried to explain what he meant in that rather um, pugnacious message that he sent to his MPs? Well, this was genuinely one of the stranger lobby calls I've been on. I mean, to give listeners a picture, uh, these days, obviously, we're not physically in a room, you know, firing questions at people. It's all in this massive kind of conference call where everybody WhatsApps in questions to um, a chair who's a journalist who then um, addresses them to the Prime Minister's spokesman and the Prime Minister's press secretary. And this was a very strange one because um, Allegra Stratton was saying that Boris Johnson had a very strong belief that politics needs to be civil and kind. Um, and the moment she said those things, there was this like flurry of WhatsApp messages saying, hang on, did I actually uh, hear that correctly? Because 
Boris Johnson is known for many things in politics, but civility and kindness is not necessarily um, amongst them. He's used a lot of kind of loose and insulting language over the years. You know, so she was quizzed on this, whether it was civil and kind when Boris Johnson, for example, used words like, you know, in the Brexit debate, like um, surrender and uh, appeasement. And she said this slightly strange thing. So, well, I'm talking about in the future. So (laughs) I don't know if this is turning over a new leaf for Boris Johnson. Anyway, it was definitely very, very strange. Finally, Peter, um, there was quite an amazing opinion piece from the former Prime Minister Theresa May in the Daily Mail this morning, wasn't there, as, as, uh, as President Trump bows out. It was it was quite a read. Well, she's basically saying that the um, Boris Johnson government has lost its kind of moral compass because it refused to commit to the same um, uh, percentage of money going to uh, global aid. And it promised to break international law over the uh, Brexit uh, uh, deal. And it's fair to say the social media reaction has been very much on the lines was is this the same Theresa May who presided over government, which had, you know, Windrush, the hostile environment and things like that? I mean, she wasn't exactly averse to sailing a bit close to the wind when she was PM. And and the other slightly curious thing, which I found very odd, was May's article seemed to criticise Boris Johnson for kind of cozying up to Donald Trump. And there is certainly a fair criticism there. But this was a prime minister who, more or less the moment Donald Trump stepped off the uh, inauguration stage, was getting her officials to call his to try and get over to Washington. You know, she couldn't have been keener. Yeah, she was very keen. I, I was on that trip. It was extraordinary. And there was there was a kind of there was a, a huge excitement in May's team that, that, you know, she was the first leader to visit. Although also I think there was this and now seems hopelessly naive, but this idea that somehow she could sort of influence him. You know, she could, <laughs> she, she she stopped in Philadelphia on the way and gave this speech about the rules-based global order and how important it was and multilateral institutions and how important they were. And, you know, she was she was going to kind of keep him under control. She was going to be the leader who was who was going to keep him on the straight and narrow. Now it looks almost hilarious, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, to an extent, this is also politically interesting in that, you know, for all the timing and the kind of accusations you can make, having an XPM kind of going slightly off-piste is never easy for whoever is in number 10. And this is something that's been building up. I mean, she got very, very angry about this Brexit trade deal period when um, the Johnson government was saying that they were going to go back on uh, international law. You know, and she wasn't the only former Tory leader who wasn't, you know, very pleased about that. But having a former prime minister in the Commons, who's still very respected amongst lots of Conservative MPs, is not necessarily going to be fun. No, it's really fascinating to watch her reincarnation, isn't it, as a backbench rebel? It's um, yeah, quite 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 entertaining. Um, Peter Walker, as always, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Despite reporting through one of the most chaotic years in UK politics, Peter somehow also found the time to write a book about the way everyday physical movement has vanished for the world and what it means for our health. Pretty apt for lockdown, eh? There'll be a link to his new book, The Miracle Pill, on today's episode description on the Guardian website. After the break, Severin Carell explains the impromptu Scottish Labour leadership contest, and I look behind the real meaning of levelling up. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now with four months left to go before crucial parliamentary elections in Holyrood, the Scottish Labour Party is scrambling to find ways to contend with Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party. My leadership uh, was still the subject of speculation and we are about to fight one of the most important elections in the history of the devolution era. Uh, In this report, The Guardian's Scotland editor Severin Carell examines the next steps for Labour in Scotland after the shock exit of its leader Richard Leonard. Last week, Scottish Labour's leader for the last three years, Richard Leonard, unexpectedly and suddenly resigned. I took the very difficult decision uh, that the best thing that I could do uh, for me and in the interests of the party was to step down. Leonard said that he'd been thinking about his leadership and the future of the Scottish Labour Party over the Christmas period. He thought, he said, that he hadn't been able to produce the right kind of criticisms and leadership in the face of the COVID pandemic. But Leonard had actually been under attack from within the party for some time. If we articulate a positive vision of change for the future, and if we all get 100% behind Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. He had been elected as Scottish Labour leader on the surge of support for Jeremy Corbyn three years ago. He is on the Corbynite wing of the party, but he'd actually failed to produce much energy to the party. He had been regarded as lacklustre. Very few people in Scotland knew who he was, and he had actually withstood very narrowly a rebellion by a number of centrist Labour MSPs and trade union leaders back in September. Part of the problem, of course, is that Scottish Labour's standing in the polls in Scotland is still very poor. They're around 30 to 35 points behind the Scottish National Party at around 18, 19% in the polls. And on that level of popular support, they're at risk of losing a number of their seats. And for the, the irony is, you see, is that Richard has said constantly that he only he needs time to rebuild Labour. But at every single turn, every time Scottish Labour is tested at the polls, Labour does pretty badly. The Scottish Labour Party, uh, like the whole of the Labour Party, uh, is a broad church. It brings together different perspectives uh, and uh, views on the left. But we are at our best when we are pulling together. As soon as Leonard resigned last week, Senior figures inside the Scottish Labour Party realised they had very little time to organise a campaign to replace him. The big, big challenge for Scottish Labour is May's Scottish parliamentary elections. And with the SNP so far ahead in the polls, they're on track, as things stand, to win their second overall majority. And when they win a majority, there's a very, very widely held view that it would be pretty much impossible to withstand their requests for a a second Scottish independence referendum. So they're hoping for a pretty fast election. They've arranged for the leadership election to happen by February 27th. And there are two contenders, Anas Sawa. Instead, true leadership right now is to heal the wounds in our country, to reunite our people and to rebuild our nation. And that work starts here. 
son of a former Scottish Labour MP and, in, in, in fact, the UK's first Asian MP, Mohamed Sawa, and I stood against Richard Leonard in the 2017 Labour Party election and lost to Richard Leonard. And the other contender will be Monica Lennon, a 40-year-old former councillor who, at the Scottish Parliament, has earned plaudits and widespread respect for leading a campaign for Scotland to become the first country in the world to offer free period products. This bill shows what Parliament can do when we put aside our legitimate political differences and work together. One of the defining issues which has already emerged is that Monica Lennon believes that the Scottish Labour Party should accept the fact that there could well be a second independence referendum. Because during the general election and the build-up to it, um, UK politicians, including my leader Jeremy Corbyn, were asked repeatedly what they would do. And that, for me, was quite an uncomfortable discussion. Now, I am not advocating for independence. And if so, should put forward an alternative to both independence or a Tory standard pro-union position, a major campaign for Devo Max, she calls it, maximum devolution or a form of federalism. Now, Sarwar is taking a much more orthodox position. He believes that, he, that Labour should campaign against a referendum and not accept that referendum is inevitable. But instead of focusing on recovery, the SNP and the Tories will want to take us back to divisive politics of old. But we can't go back to fighting between ourselves. Now, on the question about whether Sawa would back further constitutional reform, I think the answer to that probably is yes. But the question is, what do they say about the specific question of whether Labour should accept the, the, the case for and the need for a second referendum? But I do accept that the status quo isn't working. And I, I don't accept the argument that if the status quo isn't working, the next thing you do is go to a referendum. I think there are other things... And, of course, what happens with Scottish Labour is of immense significance for Keir Starmer and the UK Labour Party too. If Leonard's successor fails to turn around Labour's electoral fortunes, and if Labour remains at around 18-90% in the polls, then there's a very good chance that the SNP will win a majority, and that after Covid and with Brexit, the next challenge for the UK and the next challenge for Keir Starmer is going to be what Labour does if there's a second independence referendum. What Labour at the UK level need is they need a resurgent Scottish Labour Party able to bring more Labour MPs to Westminster to allow Keir Starmer to put up a much more coherent and effective challenge to Boris Johnson and the Tories. So one of the reasons why I've made the decision that now is the time uh, for me to go is because I want to see a united party. One of the ironies of Richard Leonard's sudden resignation is, of course, the debate, the battle between Sarwar and Lennon is that it'll propel that debate into the headlines and propel it into public consciousness in a way that Leonard would probably have failed to do had he remained as party leader. The question then for both Lennon and for Sawa is whether their policy debates become fractious or not. And if they do become fractious, if they become polarised, if they become intolerant, or if their supporters start being polarised and intolerant, it could end up actually alienating more possible potential Labour voters. And we should say that at the time of recording, Anna Sawa has the backing of more nominating parliamentarians than Monica Lennon. But of course, as with all of these things, we can't rule out Lennon just yet. Now it's a few weeks away yet, but many are gearing up to hear what the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has up his sleeve for the spring budget coming in March. So far, Sunak has been able to play a kind of hero in the pandemic, 
creating the furlough scheme and promising to continue to wrap his arms around the economy for as long as is necessary. In November, while launching his spending review, he was criticised for freezing the pay of many public sector workers, but was able to announce a new £4 billion levelling up fund that he said would pay for upgrading local infrastructure across the UK. This had economists wondering, what does the government actually mean by its promise to level up? And will the Treasury still be ready to foot the bill, given the state of the public finances after the pandemic? This week, I spoke to Miata Farnbuller, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, and Will Tanner, Director of the centre-right think tank Onward. Miata, levelling up, maybe we should start off by identifying the problem. Why is the UK in need of levelling up? It's something politicians and economists have been talking about for decades, isn't it? It is. Um, And essentially, we have huge levels of regional uh, inequality. And there is a big disparity between London, the southeast and the rest of the country. And I think it's become particularly prominent because uh, we've always known we've had this, if you like, north-south divide. What's become increasingly clear is that even within that, there are some towns uh, that are really, really struggling, that have not really rebounded back from you know, the period of deindustrialization that we had in the 80s and the 90s. We haven't seen new sort of industries. We've seen services that tend to be quite low paid, um, if that. Uh, and I think it all came to a head with the Brexit vote, where there was a sense that for parts of the country, the economic landscape was just not working for them. Um, and people were very frustrated and very disgruntled. And that sense that, you know, communities were in effect left behind, I think is something that punctured through uh, the political consciousness uh, of both the public, but in, but importantly, the politicians. And this is when levelling up, I think, became a huge political issue. And I think it will be for a very long time. And well, you worked for Theresa May, didn't you, in, in a former life? She talked about white collar conservatism, had a concept, didn't she, white collar conservatism and talked about inequalities and so on. But, you know, what does Boris Johnson in particular mean by levelling up? What Boris Johnson has done is define this um, specifically in regional terms. And the way he talks about it is that talent is everywhere. Talent is in every community in the country, but opportunity is not. Uh, there is a disparity between the opportunities which are available to people in some parts of the country compared to the opportunities available elsewhere. And I think uh, what is really interesting about this is that there is an alignment, as Miata says, between some of the economic fundamentals. We know that London, for example, has been accelerating away from the country, uh, for the rest of the country for the last few decades, um, and the political fundamentals and the realignment that you saw in the 2019 election following the 2016 referendum, the, the kind of new political reality that faces the Conservative Party, where they are suddenly Uh, the incumbent party in all of these red wall seats, which have been facing these challenges for for a long period of time, but the Conservatives now has an incentive to do something about it. So there is a political imperative as well as an economic imperative for Boris Johnson to deliver on his promise of of levelling up opportunity in those places. Miata, how would you measure, looking back, for example, in 2024, how much difference Boris Johnson has made? How much, how and whether he's succeeded in this in this aim of levelling up. I suspect, as, as Will says, one of his ways of measuring it will be how many of those seats can he retain. But from a sort of economist perspective, how would we be able to see the difference? For me, the test of levelling up is not just a test of can you get the parts of the country to grow that weren't growing before, which is part of it. It has to translate into material improvements in people's living standards. 
you know, I think levelling up is being framed as a geographical problem. It is about the regional divide, and it is in part about the regional divide, but it also is about the divide between people. So even in, you know, parts of the country that have historically been doing, you know, relatively well, like London, we have huge pockets of deprivation. You have cities like Manchester that have grown uh, in recent years, but we have huge pockets of deprivation. And I think if we simply see it as this place, Burnley, uh, sees an uplift in um, living standards, that's enough in the aggregate, I think we would have failed. I think it's also about, well, you know, where there are disparities in terms of people's fortunes within places, we're also seeing a levelling up there as well. Well, I both agree and disagree. I think um, Mieta's right to point to earnings and employment as probably the two best measures of progress. There are different reasons for that, but they include the fact that we measure those things regularly at a, at a very granular lo- local level, so we can actually meaningfully measure progress on those outcomes. I think they're also the things that most voters uh, approximate to economic opportunity too. Those are the things that are going to allow them to get on in life. Um, I'm a bit more sceptical about the narrative that we need to be focusing as much on kind of deprivation in in London as as elsewhere, not because there isn't deprivation in London, but uh, and Manchester and some of the other places that we had to mention, but because those areas have actually in the past been subject to really rigorous and uh, and um, uh, kind of focused regeneration attempts and have had a huge amount of uh, money poured into them by government, and arguably there's been an attempt to actually. Uh, kind of overheat the economy of London to some degree uh, at the expense of uh, other parts of the country. And if you look at some of the statistics, it's really clear that that London has been uh, the kind of centre of lots of government-enhanced centrifugal forces like R&D spending, transport spending. Um, and that has driven some of the improvement in income and earnings and employment that London has, has benefited from that hasn't been the case in other places. So I do think it will require a bit of a refocusing and a recognition that there are other parts of the country that perhaps need a bit more attention than London, notwithstanding all of the uh, of the challenges that the capital faces. Mm. Mia, so what are the policy failures do you think that mean we've ended up where we are? Obviously, Boris Johnson has this sense of a sort of fresh start. He's coming in, he's going to sort this problem out. Of course, we've had Conservative governments for a long time. And, and you know, as Will said, this is something that Labour governments talked about a bit as well, the North-South divide and so on. What, what, what are the there's policy mistakes or failures that mean that we've got here? So I think there are long-term ones, and I think there are short-term. I think, you know, this is an intractable problem for policymakers that's been around for a long time. Um, And I think Will is right. There has not been enough focus on how we um, improve and uh, build up parts of the country. And there's been too much of a focus, I think, in our economic development models that, you know, the parts of the country that are doing well, London and the Southeast, you chuck a whole load of investment at them, um, and they carry the rest of the country. And that clearly was the wrong strategy. I think the short term, all of that has now been exacerbated by, you know, a decade of austerity, which has really hammered some of these communities coupled with the lack of a clear industrial strategy. We talk the language of industrial strategy we have since 2008, but we've never actually done it properly, where we've looked at places, thought about their opportunities, their assets, their challenges, and then equipped people in those places with the resources uh, and the wherewithal to actually respond. There's been a lot of rhetoric, but there hasn't been a lot of reality. And then you chuck COVID in the mix and it is pretty, pretty tough. So I think the challenge is a big one, but we have a sense of the sorts of things that you need to do if you want to respond. 
Mm, let's talk a bit more about solutions. Will, your think tank Onward published a report on Monday called Leveling Up the Tax System. And you, you were talking about ways the Chancellor could use the tax system to try and narrow some of these gaps. Traditionally, we think more maybe about spending, don't we, on infrastructure or whatever. Talk us through what some of your recommendations were. We identify a number of taxes which uh, are actually regionally regressive. So we think about taxes as kind of spatially blind. They apply equally to all people. But because people behave differently in in different parts of the country and there are different types of businesses in different parts of the country, uh, they have markedly different uh, burdens depending on where you are. So, for example, council tax is very strongly skewed towards poorer regions uh, and actually doesn't particularly burden London on average. Um, So we recommended that one thing the Chancellor could consider would be to uh, reform Band A council tax, so reduce the lowest band of council tax, and therefore put money back into the pockets of poorer households. That would benefit 54% of households uh, in the Northeast, for example, compared to just 4% of households in London. So there are different ways that the Chancellor can use the tax system to aid levelling up. And the kind of counterpoint is that if he doesn't use the tax system effectively, there's a risk that some of his tax changes might actually make levelling up harder. And that's one of the things you talk about, isn't it, that, that, that the Treasury should should publish analysis of, of the sort of regional impact of, of the changes that it's making. So at, at each budget, they publish charts, don't they, to show us how the incomes of the richest and the poorest will be affected. You, you think they should do that by region too, to, to sort of focus minds? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're very used to those those bar charts which show the extent to which richer or poorer households are being affected by different tax reforms. Why don't we do the same by region so that we can understand the regional implications of, of different changes? I think it would drive a new type of debate about taxes, which is not just focused on the rich versus the poor, but also focused on the regional impact, which is clearly a big focus of this government. Without a doubt, there's a taxation piece. But what I would say is that I don't think the answer is necessarily just thinking about how we reduce the tax burden. I think we need to think about how we make the tax burden more progressive. But, you know, for something like council tax for business rates, I think we need a big overhaul of them anyway in the context of devolving fiscal responsibility. So, you know, power over revenue raising uh, to the local, to the regional level, uh, so that, you know, mayors and other bodies have the capacity to raise money in order to invest in the things that they think will make their economies better. And if we don't do that, we're just tinkering. Uh, we may reduce the tax burden a little bit for people, but we don't change the nature of their economy so that it works for them and so that you deliver on the objective of levelling up. Well, how important is that devolution sort of piece of the puzzle, do you think? I think so. I think devolution is a really big part of levelling up, and uh, we're very unlikely to solve some of the regional growth problems that this country has unless we solve the the regional governance question, the kind of uh, the higgledy piggledy mishmash of uh, of different arrangements which exist in different parts of the country, mayors in one place, county councils in another. We need to uh, reform that system so that not only is it simpler, but that those organisations have more power and a greater ability to to be accountable to their local population over economic as well as public service issues. Well, do you get the sense that government are willing to be bold enough about this? That there's a te- there might be a temptation to think, gosh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, we're looking at a recession, the public finances are in a terrible state, maybe now's the not, not the time to do anything too radical or, or drastic. Well, I actually think we're in a very similar position 
to uh, to when we were during the Second World War, um, during the kind of all the debates around the, the Beveridge Report and the kind of future of the welfare state in the post-war Reconstruction era. And at that time, you had um, Attlee and Churchill both looking to the kind of post-war period, as it were. And I'm sorry to do another kind of comparison between COVID and, and wartime because they are clearly very different, but I think there are similarities. And so you had Churchill and Clemently looking to the post-war period and saying, we are going to need to make some big changes, but trying to do all of that in the middle of a, a crisis, a, a kind of a period of war, um, is probably uh, a bit impetuous and 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 too soon. So uh, I think we are in the period of debate where people are starting to look to the future, and they are willing to be bold. And certainly, all the conversations I have with ministers, there's a kind of deep seated desire to to um, enact some really big reforms, but a recognition that to do it right now um, might be uh, a little bit too soon. I completely agree with Will that it feels that we are undergoing something that is hugely disruptive and traumatic in a way that, you know, the Second World War was, and that out of that rupture has to come something else. And certainly in rhetoric terms, you know, ministers are talking about Build Back Better, they're talking about the desire for us to recover better. But, you know, the test will be in action. And my nervousness is that definitely in rhetorical terms, they're there. Uh, but every time uh, they need to act and not I'm not talking about, if you like, the emergency respond to COVID, but I'm thinking about the things that lay the groundwork for the recovery. Uh, say, for example, if you think about uh, the piece uh, that the Chancellor announced on the green recovery, which in rhetorical terms sounds brilliant. But when you look at the, the, the quantum, the amounts that's been kind of uh, put towards green investment, it's paltry um, and far, far dwarfs what we're seeing, for example, uh, amongst our European counterparts. So so there is a big chasm between what they're doing and what they're saying. And I hope that there is just enough political pressure and consensus, because I think there is consensus that something has to come out of this that's better, that, that forces them to act with a level of ambition that they absolutely must do. And we get much clearer sense hopefully in the next kind of few months to a year of, of how radical they're willing to be. Just last question to both of you. I wonder whether you think voters are watching, are focused on this issue of levelling up and whether you think Boris Johnson will be punished in 2024 if he, he doesn't have something to show for that promise by then. Miata, what do you think? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't know whether they will recognise or care about the phrase levelling up. But, you know, there was a clear promise that was made that if you if you come to us, uh, we will make your lives better. Um, Brexit will create the window for us to do that. Uh, and there will be sunny uplands. And I think if people don't feel that in their day to day lives, if they don't see uh, that, you know, materially day to day, they're doing better, that the prospect for their kids are better. But, you know, alongside that, their communities feel like they're starting to thrive and improve, he will be held to account, and rightly so. I think the Conservatives went into the last election with three messages, get Brexit done, ditch Jeremy Corbyn and level up opportunity. They've done two. Uh, they now need to deliver the third. And the a pandemic has got in the way, but that's not going to stop voters expecting uh, some serious results by 2024. Will Tanner and Riata Farnbuller, thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be on. And that's all from us this week. Meanwhile, Lord Sedwill, the ex-head of the civil service, claimed that Boris Johnson would not have been happy if Donald Trump had won a second term in office, as many commentators had assumed. Whether that's true or not makes little difference now anyway, of course, as Donald Trump spends his last few hours as president escaping Washington DC and avoiding the inauguration of Joe Biden. The world will be watching today as Biden takes the oath of office, 
hoping that his tenure turns out to be a smoother one than his predecessors, which ended with riots in the capital. Tomorrow, Jonathan Friedland and Richard Wolfe look at how Inauguration Day went, so make sure to look out for that in the Politics Weekly feed. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Peter Walker, Severin Carell, Miata Farnbuller and Will Tanner. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.